And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe, the very busy intersection of faith and reason, where I stand as always, Doug Keck, uh, keeping the gate open, hopefully, when we do the show. And of course, from Mother Angelica's place where she started all in Irondale, Alabama in 1981, the mothership, as Father Spitzer likes to refer to it as. And you can email your question to us at SpitzersUniverse at EWN.com. That's what we're going to be focusing on, too. Check out Father's websites at the Magis Center, Incredible Catholic, and PurposefulUniverse.com. At least that's how many he's got this week. We'll find out next week. And, of course, Father Spitzers <laughs> Universe is always available on the EWN On Demand page and on our YouTube channel, as long as they don't pull it on us. And check out all of our other favorite programs that we feature on EWN on our On Demand page and our YouTube channel. Currently have over 10,000 hours of programming between our YouTube and on-demand channels featuring all your favorites like Mother Angelica, Father Mitch, The Daily Mass, uh, great children's programming. And also I wanted to mention and throw in, we got a great Podcast Central as well. So we got our radio podcast available, audio from our TV shows there. Check out our radio page with that. And also the best of the rest, a lot of other podcasts from people around the country that you may not be aware of. Check that out. Today we're taking your questions. Those questions you sent in, our mailbag got so full, uh, they told us we had to get to some of these questions. So with that, we turn to Father Spitzer. Great to see you again. Great to be with you, Doug. Thank you. If you'd like to kick everything off with a prayer, that'd be great. You bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us now to inspire, guide, protect us, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Asking all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> and Mary's seat of wisdom. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Okay, so like we said, this is a program where we catch up on the questions uh, that people have sent in based on uh, our various programs and your answers of the past. Here's, uh, we'll get started right away. Dear Father Spitzer, why do scientists focus on technicalities and forget the miracle itself in front of their own eyes. I heard a Catholic scientist saying tests on the Laciano miracle were inconclusive due to the lack of chain of custody. Does not the fact that the heart tissue itself is so well preserved all these years prove that a miracle took place? This is Andy. Well, Andy, you know, uh, it is the job of a scientist to try and give uh, a naturalistic explanation wherever one can be found. Now, in order to do that, they have a method called reductionism. But part of uh, you know a reductionistic method is to make sure that every single dimension that you know would affect a determination of whether natural causation is present or not should be considered. Now, it is true to say that anything from the 8th century 
um, right, you know, and the Lanciano miracle, right, is from the eighth century. Mm. Uh, that is a very, uh, you can't get a good chain of custody, period. Mm. And, and it's certainly, it's just the fact. And, and so he's saying this, and so he says, yes, there are questions that could surround chain of custody, and we have to acknowledge that. We can't glaze over that. Could there have been some kind of a problem? Mm. Now, as you already say, Andy, there's something very interesting about, you know, flesh that's growing out of the host. And uh, we need, you know, um, uh, Eduardo Linoli uh, in Italy, uh, Dr. Eduardo Linoli did a very fine job in the scientific investigation of that miracle. However, um, you know, there are many things because of not just the chain of custody um, issues, but because of the age of the sample, et cetera, et cetera, you know, where people could say, you know, I've got my doubts. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, you know, because I, I'm just not sure that, you know, I, I could rigor, I, I could say that this thing has been rigorously affirmed mm. in test conditions, which is right. what a scientist wants to do. I recommend then that people first take the miracles of Buenos Aires and um, Tixla, Mexico, and two, Buenos Aires is 1996, Tixla, Mexico, 2006, and Sokolka, Poland in 2008, where there's no chain of custody problems whatsoever, okay. and where you do have electron screening analysis that shows that, the, you know, the entanglement um, between the substance of the host and the substance of the heart tissue on the level of, um, you know, the microfibers um, and filaments uh, on the, on, in the myocardium uh, that, you know, when you have that kind of, you know, a few micron mm -hmm. separation between the substance of the, tissue, of the heart tissue and the substance of the host, that's something that you can validate with good chain of custody. Um, that is something that, that really is telling. Then you look at the Textla miracle where you can still see fresh blood exuding from the center uh, of the, the uh, Textla host, mm -hmm. and you can actually validate that. And by the way, um, uh, Dr. Ricardo uh, Castanon Gomez did such a great job of actually getting the 13 laboratories for the examination of the different aspects of the host lined up so quickly that we don't have a chain of custody problem. We don't have an, uh, you know, autolysis problem. Uh, autolysis is the, you know, uh, the decomposition of, of tissue, the, the breakdown of tissue. Mm -hmm. We don't really have a significant autolysis problem and so forth. So if you look then at the similarities, for example, the similarity in the, uh, the substance of the tissue growing from the substance of the host, or the AB uh, um, uh, blood type, uh, you know, that's in that host, and all three of the Eucharistic hosts, and indeed the uh, Shroud of Turin, all have AB blood type, right? So you, you look at that and you go, okay, um, you know, um, you know that, that host from Lanciano, it looks very, very similar mm -hmm. to these other hosts where there's not a chain of custody problem, where you have immediate laboratory conditions uh, almost that have been imposed, mm -hmm. where you have great people like Dr. Frederick Zugaby, uh, whose credentials right, are really unblemished in any way. Uh, yeah, he, 
Yeah, a very bright man. Right. Um, and uh, uh, so all of these things are kind of put into place. Um, Dr. Elizabeta Lutkowska and uh, uh, Dr. Sol uh, Solkowski uh, there in Poland who did the electron screening, two different uh, vantage points. They did their testing independently of one another and came up with the same conclusions. And by the way, they identified all three of them in separate tests where there's no uh, possibility of collision and they identified that uh, the tissue was alive mm -hmm. because you had leukocytes. So basically you have a white, a living white blood cells, living uh, uh, macrophages that are actually, uh, you know, engulfing lipids in, in the, in the, um, uh, in the in the tissue uh, there and in the blood, uh, it's pretty clear, um, you know, that the tissue is alive. That the blood is coming from living tissue, even when it's completely disconnected from mm. a human uh, circulatory uh, and embodied circulatory system. And so, when you look at all those things in the in the hosts which don't have a chain of custody problem, and then you begin to see similarities between those hosts and the Lanciano host. I think it's pretty clear mm -hmm. that the Lanciano host is a very authentic right. uh, host, but you, you, you can't glaze over a chain of custody problem. Right. If, it, if it exists, it has to be admitted. And if somebody's got a problem with it as a natural scientist, you have to allow him that privilege. Although we can sort of uh, uh, look at it from the eyes of faith and say, right. oh yeah, uh, the, you know, I really think this is so similar to the other three hosts from Buenos Aires, Texas, in Sokolka that, you know, basically I, I think it, it's of a similar nature, similar, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, blood type, uh, similar mm -hmm. kinds of tissue. It is, by the way, all um, in, in the four hosts, right? Uh, by the way, the Lanciano host does have striated tissue. Uh, they're uh, similar to heart tissue. And that um, heart tissue from the uh, upper left ventricle, uh, they're... Um, uh, is uh, validated in all three of the uh, the more recent Eucharistic miracles, mm -hmm. 1996 uh, in Buenos Aires and uh, 2006 Tixla and okay. 2008 Sokolka. So I think it's a reasonable conclusion to make. Right. But uh, yeah, don't you don't want to force natural scientists to glaze over problems, which in other scientific tests would be problems. Right. So uh, we have to let uh, let that ride. But when we have the really good stuff. Right. Uh, let's not argue first from the weakest link in the chain. Let's look at the three strong Good links point. in the chain right. and then go back to the weaker link in the chain right. and then look at the similarities but like, but and like, make an implicit deduction from that. Like all things yeah, that, that relate like, to God, yeah. faith has to play a part. Faith plays a part, an unquestionable and necessary part. Right, absolutely. Right, absolutely. Next up, uh, dear Father Spitzer, I saw a news article about a grandmother who, as a joke, made up cards to be distributed at her funeral. The card contained a picture of her, a picture of a Ouija board with the line, let's keep in touch. Granted, it was a joke, but I found it uh. scary and somewhat evil that someone would do this. I have a friend who thought I made too much of it and it was meant as a joke only. This was Nancy. Well, Nancy, you know, again, I mean, I agree a Ouija board is terrible in any circumstance, mm. you know, and I, I'm perfectly also willing to admit that that grandmother didn't know, um, you know, uh, very much about um, 
uh, you know, what a Ouija board does and, you know, the kinds of spirits that you can conjure through a Ouija board. And it is very close to the dark side of things and the dark mm. arts. So uh, she may not have known that. It might have been a prop she used. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, it was obviously not in good taste. It was obviously not... Um, you know, uh, something that you probably want to do, uh, even as a joke. But nevertheless, I would have to say, you, you don't want to, uh, if you blow it out of proportion to the point where it looks like you're accusing her of doing something evil, right. uh, you're, uh, you know, you probably are not doing yourself or the people around you any favors because they're just going to scratch their heads and they're going, well, it was a joke. Right. So my right. thought would be, yes, Ouija boards are evil. You shouldn't use them. Uh, that was a stupid, uh, a stupid joke, a absolutely, right. uh, to be doing, especially with the implications. She might not have known of that, so you probably don't want to accuse her of something malintended. That's right. the main thing. Right, very good. Yeah. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, I'm a lifelong member of the Methodist Church, but have been to several Catholic masses. Methodists share many beliefs with Catholics, but of course differ in other <clears throat> beliefs. Do you think all Christians will ever be united into one single church, or is this too big for us to hope for? This is Nick. Uh, oh, well, Nick, you know, I, I mean, the, um, the, the more realistic side of me says probably too big to hope for. I think there are, you know, people perpetuate differences to perpetuate differences. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to be distinctive. They want to be better. It's one of the human foibles that uh, is part and parcel of egocentricity, which in many ways affects us all. So that's, you know, again, mm -hmm. you know, that's probably, you know, um, you know, the, the, as I said, the, the kind of the more realistic uh, and sometimes a little bit uh, uh, cynical, skeptical side mm. of me. All the, uh, alternatively, in heaven, though, mm. we're all going to be together, uh, you know. And so, uh, you know, by the time we get to heaven, right, I mean, we're going to be purified of our, uh, of our egocentricity. Mm. And then at the time, we're going to know what the real truth is, and we're going to be united around the real truth. Mm -hmm. And so I, I can't help but think that... Uh, uh, you know, um, you know. Sometimes, you know, people who don't believe in the real presence are going to get up into heaven, and when they see, I, I, which I do not doubt for a single second, mm -hmm. I think it's there writ large in the scriptures. I think it's there writ large in the Semitic understanding of time. I think it's there writ large in the uh, Eucharistic miracles. I think it's there uh, in in the early church fathers. I think it's there in the and it has to be there in the intentionality of Jesus given John six. Uh, you know, when I look at all of these things, I just have to tell you, uh, I think uh, the, the Jesus is no doubt body, blood, soul, and divinity present in the Holy Eucharist. I, I think when people maybe get to heaven and they go, mm. oh my gosh, you really did mean it, huh? Mm. And, and uh, I missed out on all that time. I missed out on that grace. I missed out on that transformation. I missed out on that mm. communion. I missed out on that protection from evil and the evil spirit. Oh, well, you know, that was... Uh, uh, you know, unfortunate. Um, and so uh, I, I would have to say that uh, I think that's going to happen, wow. um, you know, um, uh, when people get there. But uh, we're going to be united around a single truth. And uh, that's going to meld away the differences because right. when you see truth presented by God himself, pretty hard to say, well, I think I still hold on to the uh, right. to my uh, well, 
falsities and errors. <laughs> you're, you're probably going to just agree. So I think it's a bit too much to hope for. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, you know, I think what we do need to do is uh, communicate with each other, look for the similarities that we have, uh, you know, in our religions and, um, you know, um, uh, you know, we, and try as best we can to work mm -hmm. together towards solutions to cultural problems, mm -hmm. which frankly are tearing us apart. Right. And we do have enough in common where we can really get, um, you know, some of these issues resolved by working together much more than looking at our differences and uh, deciding to uh, agree to disagree and something like that. Right, absolutely. Next up, uh, dear Father Spitzer, I got married in the church to a non-Catholic man. A few months into the marriage, my husband told me he was bisexual. He said he always suspected, but now finally is sure. This was the first time he ever mentioned anything like this to me. Am I required to stay in this marriage? If I divorce him, will I have to leave the Catholic Church? Lisa, I think uh, I think you're okay, Lisa. So, uh. Hi, uh, Lisa. First of all, you know, um, uh, the, the question is not uh, about the bisexuality. Uh, he may have those desires, mm. but, you know, if he's practicing those desires, uh, that would be something else. And then if he intended to practice, uh, you know, and carry out and act on those desires uh, you know, within your marriage, and then he did not have the freedom to marry mm. as the Catholic Church defines it. Right. And so there may be uh, grounds for annulment, right. um, but I would stay married to him. I would, you know, if he intends to remain faithful to you, whether he has bisexual desires or not, stay married to him, of course, you, you know. I mean, the main part is that he's faithful to you. He's not uh, um, uh, betraying you. He's going to hopefully be a good father to your children. And, and um, you know, the Catholic Church would ask that uh, we remain faithful. And Jesus Christ would say, mm -hmm. remain faithful uh, to your spouse, uh, even though he, he does have uh, these desires. Uh, I think if he knew them ahead of time, though, he should have definitely uh, revealed that well, to you. Well, that seems to be um, the case, but, right? Yeah. It does seem yeah. to be the case. And also, so, it seems like maybe he's indicating this is an issue for him and, and something he needs to deal with, which would lend one to think there's probably other issues inside the marriage, right? Well, yeah. Uh, well, the, yeah. well, then you have grounds for annulment right, if he exactly. does right. go through with uh, acting on those desires. Right. And um, if he begins to remove himself from you, uh, you know, d you know uh, and starts looking at uh, uh, other um, uh, people and trying to practice on that, uh, right. and he had knowledge of that, full knowledge uh, before the marriage and did not disclose it to you, you really do have grounds Absolutely. Uh, for an annulment. Get an annulment and, and yeah. you're fine with the church and, and don't worry yeah. about that part. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, my wife and I were married in a non-denominational church. I'm a baptized Catholic, she's baptized but not Catholic. I have since come back to my faith and want to get our marriage convalidated in the Catholic Church, but she's very much yeah. against the church and refuses. What can I do? Steve. Well, Steve, you can't force her uh, to go through a convalidation, mm -hmm. but um, um, what she needs to know is, you know, to get the, the, the wedding convalidated, she doesn't have to become a Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you can just say, hey, look, would you do this for me? 
because I want to be, you know, validly married in the Catholic Church and just say, you know, despite your feelings about the church, you know, let's at least, you know, begin with, you know, uh, you know, convalidating it in the church for my sake right, and right. for, you know, my, the sake of my own conscience. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, maybe, you know, if you have some questions and so forth about it, then, you know, we can resolve those later. Um, but uh, I think, you know, she doesn't have to become Catholic. She doesn't have to agree with the Catholic Church, but just ask for your sake, Steve, mm -hmm. that, you know, that for the sake of your conscience, that you know she go through with the convalidation, and um, and uh, right. uh, I think uh, maybe she might uh, agree to that um, because again you're not asking anything of her except mm. to accede to your desire to have this convalidated. Right and right and maybe if you you've gone back to the church, uh, there are insights into it. You can mm -hmm. help her deal with whatever issues she apparently has. Yeah. Uh, with the church person. Yeah. So. Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Next, next up, dear Father Spitzer, my brother and his wife have grown increasingly anti-religious over the years and refused to have their young children baptized in the church. They said they would permit me to baptize them. I've heard a layperson could baptize in an emergency. Would this constitute an emergency? Could I validly baptize my niece and nephew, Andrea? Well, Andrea, you know, this is the Bob Spitzer non-canonical interpretation here, but I'm going to give you what I think is valid, and that is, I, you know, there, as long as it is true that they say they will not uh, have those children baptized um, uh, by any official means, then, um, uh, you know, I would say it is okay for you to baptize them. Right. However, I'd like uh, it uh, if you could just contact a canonist at your diocese. There's normally a priest mm -hmm. uh, who's a canonist and just ask if that's okay to check uh, right. uh, my, my thought. But I think it is actually okay if in fact they will not have that child baptized. You can do a conditional baptism and you can get that right off your internet, uh, you know, the conditional, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of a baptism um, there so that if, uh, if uh, you know, um, mm -hmm. Um, you know, just just uh, use the regular uh, baptismal formula uh, to baptize but just check it out mm -hmm. with your canonist there. I'm pretty sure it's okay uh -huh. uh, because it sounds like uh, your brother and sister uh, are not going to uh, ever under any circumstances uh, get the children baptized. Right, absolutely. Dear Father yeah. Spitzer, why are only priests and deacons allowed to give homilies at Mass? Unfortunately, our pastor gives very lackluster homilies that are not at all inspiring. <laughs> I know several parishioners who yeah. are great public speakers and could really fire everyone up. With a little guidance by the pastor, couldn't they come up and give the homily? Jimmy. Well, Jimmy, uh, here is the problem. Uh, the church has been around for 2,000 years and has almost universally experienced one thing.
If you begin to allow people who are not ordained, who are not responsible in obedience to the bishop, uh, who have not studied the doctrines of the Catholic Church, you can almost be assured that about every other homily you're going to hear some form of heresy or another, even in the most enthusiastically delivered and evangelical mode. Without education, without a vow of obedience, it almost invariably happens. And let me tell you, the church has seen this, mm -hmm. and the church has, you know, finally just said, you know, that's the end of this. You know, there's just too much error that's going on out there, and errors in doctrine can be exceedingly misleading. And so, the, you know, unfortunately, a homily is not a motivational speech for a motivational right. speaker. I mean, basically, you really have to be spot on with the truth. And I know some priests are lackluster, and, you know, my, my solution to that, though, is, is, you know, a lot of people, you know, are kind of listening for the point or he's elucidating the gospel in some way that might be useful for your life. And if you can't get that from your priest there at your parish, um, let me just make the old side recommendation here. Go to another parish. Honestly, find a, a, a priest who really, uh, you know, can give you something that will help you uh, to live your faith, that will help you to understand the scriptures more deeply. Uh, but uh, no, I don't think, um, you know, as they say, opening up the, the door uh, to, to lay speakers who are very, very good public speakers is the solution. Right. I've just heard too many stories, too many of, you know, really egregious errors that have been, uh, you know, shouted from the pulpit and then the priest is, you know, backing out of it and trying to, you know, correct the thing and the bishop gets involved because the parishioners make a complaint and, and of course, in the meantime, you've mid uh, misled, you know, 500 people right. who are attending that mass. So uh, I, I think yeah, the Catholic Church and, speaks and, wisdom on right, this Right, and issue. many times the people doing it are of goodwill. They say things they don't even realize yeah. are wrong and they don't, then they're embarrassed yeah. over what happens as well. So, oh yeah, right. absolutely. Right. So uh, yeah, this is the best way is to and, and to, the uh, church the ordained, gives uh, plenty of opportunities preaching. for with uh, retreats and conferences and other things to hear powerful yeah. speakers, uh, lay speakers like Scott Hahn and those people out there who who do those kinds yeah. of things or anybody else who might be a powerful oh, speaker yeah. in your who might give a, a talk at a, you know at the parish after mass but not during mass. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the Scott Huns of this world have gone through a, a very extensive theological education, as priests and deacons mm -hmm. have, uh, so they pretty much know what's orthodox, what's not. But most lay people, even, you know, some of the really good, enthusiastic, right. you know, evangelizing lay people, they have not done extensive theological training. And, of course, that's why it's so easy, uh, you know, to, to basically get yourself into not just a, a heresy, right. but one that's really destructive. Uh, to somebody's you know path to holiness, so we got to be uh, uh, pretty pretty careful in regulating that. And that's what we try and do here on EWTN because there needs to be that continuity. Yeah. Uh, some other you can go to TBN right. and some of the other Protestant networks who have wonderful preachers, but you can go from one show to another and they're they're contradicting each other. Uh, they might say it very engagingly, yeah. but they're actually contradicting what yeah. one one believes versus oh, another. Yeah. So. 
Oh, yeah, no, it absolutely happens all the time. Okay. <laughs> we got a couple of minutes before the break. Another question, dear Father Spitzer. Sure. It's my understanding that a priest must consume the host and drink the precious blood for a valid mass. If a priest is in the state of mortal sin, does he sin again by consuming the host at mass? What alternative would he have, as I could not see him canceling Sunday mass because he needs to go to confession? Kathy. Well, well, Kathy, I mean, there are a series of canons that, that, uh, that regulate that. And, of course, he does commit a mortal sin if he actually consumes those and um, uh, drinks a precious blood uh, in a state of mortal sin. So, I mean, yes, he does commit another mortal sin, and um, he does need to go to confession. But, you know, um, uh, in order for the Mass to be valid, um, the the consecration has to be done mm -hmm. validly, um, but I have to look up in my canon mm -hmm. law whether or not um, the priest has to consume the host and drink the precious blood, and uh, for the mass to be valid, for it to be licit, yes, mm -hmm. uh, but for it to be valid, I'm not sure that that's true. And so uh, let me get you and um, uh, let me uh, uh, check with my ca wow. canonist friends and. Uh, and uh, I'll get you the Can answer you, in another show. For, for some of us out here, <laughs> oh. just, uh, and we hear this sometimes, could you just give us a stipulation between something that might be licit versus something that's valid? It's not licit, but it's still sure. valid, or explain what those two differences yeah, are. Yeah, so uh, licit is according to the law, right? Mm -hmm. So according to the regulations. And so, of course, there's a, what's called the Roman sanct uh, sacramentary, and that uh, uh, Roman Missal uh, prescribes all the various rubrics that are needed uh, for Mass to be licit. Mm -hmm. But there are other ones which are very, very serious, which could invalidate the presence of the Eucharist, invalidate the validity of the Mass, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, um, uh, uh, also uh, are there. And of course, that would be, let's suppose the priest decides, I think I'll change the, the words of the Holy Eucharist, mm -hmm. uh, or I think I'll, um, I'll skip the consecration mm -hmm. this time, or something of that nature. That would, of course, mm -hmm. uh, affect the validity of the Mass. And of course, you would not have, you know, even if you receive communion, uh, that would not be a validly consecrated host. Mm -hmm. So that would be a, a, something that is valid. So uh, that, uh, you know, something, so, sometimes you can have things that are uh, valid, but they're illicit, mm. right? So in other words, you didn't perform, okay, you didn't do the washing of the, uh, of your hands, or uh, you may have, uh, um, you know, left off uh, certain words in the Eucharistic prayer, which are non-essential for uh, the consecration or the institution mm -hmm. of the Eucharist, like the apoclesis or the mm -hmm. uh, actual uh, words of institution. Or you may have, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, left off part of the Our Father, or you might have done, you know, anything that's against mm -hmm. the, the rubrics, but, you know, it doesn't affect the validity of the consecration of the host or the apoclesis or something of that nature. Gotcha. Uh, then it's not going to affect the validity of the Mass. Okay, very good. On that point, we shall take a break with Father Spitzer. We'll be back with more of your questions and more of his answers right after this.
And we appreciate you staying with us for part two of this question and answer program with the one and only Father Spitzer as we answer questions he does uh, having to do with faith and reason and all sorts of other things related to the church. Are you ready, Father, for part two? I'm ready for part two. Okay, yeah, we're not doubling the prizes in, the, in this half, but, uh, <laughs> so, but right. we will go. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, my brother was raised Catholic, but as an adult is an atheist. He believes the whole idea of religion is immoral because it teaches a person to look to someone else to save them instead of taking personal responsibility for their actions and to live the best life they can. How do I respond, Laura? Sounds like a stolen well, Laura, the first there, thing, huh? yeah. <laughs> well, first of all, there's one thing to take personal responsibility, but um, you know, to say that you're not going to uh, see that you have deficits uh, in uh, your abilities all by yourself to carry out those personal responsibilities, mm -hmm. and that those deficits could be um, uh, made up for by the grace of God, and that. Uh, um, you know, through prayer, uh, those personal deficits could not only be made up for, but actually lead to greater virtue and even a greater uh, capacity to take personal responsibility for actions. Mm. That is the problem. So in other words, the idea is, of course, religious people and, um, you know, atheists, uh, you know, can equally say we should be personally responsible. Mm -hmm. What the religious person does, though, is look at himself and goes, you know, I'm a sinner. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got these personal deficits. You know, I've got real problems with egocentricity and ego fulfillment and materialism. I've got real problems with sensuality. I could actually take advantage of people. Mm. You know, I've got real temptations toward pride and toward envy and toward greed and toward lust, which I know are utterly destructive. Mm. You know what? There is in religion, uh, you know, and especially in the Christian religion, this person, Jesus Christ, who has come along and actually said that he can help me with this through the grace of the Holy Spirit, through the grace that comes through the sacraments. He actually said that if I pray and that if I try to follow his moral way, mm -hmm. that I will get at least a partial remedy mm -hmm. for my deficits. And not only will I get a partial remedy for my deficits in terms of behavior, but my deficits in terms of authenticity, mm -hmm. my deficits in terms of, you know, my own uh, being truthful to myself. And, and, and that's mm -hmm. going to have a great effect on my actions with respect to others. Will my love be more authentic and purified at the end of the day if I follow Jesus Christ, if I ask for his grace, if I submit myself to his moral teaching, and if I actually uh, you know, follow his church and the, and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that's given through the sacraments and, and through the Spirit himself, if I do that, mm -hmm. Will I be a better person? Will I be more personally responsible? The answer is yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. There's no sense in lying to yourself right. about what you can do. There's no sense in being a complete hypocrite and saying, I can be absolutely responsible for my actions without God. This is the, the solution of Jean-Paul Sartre that's been out there since World War II. Mm -hmm. 
And the, the solution of John Paul Sartre, I have to tell you, John Paul Sartre was not the nicest guy in the world. He, he did not take perfectly responsible, loving actions in all of his relationships with the people around right, him. Right, right. I, I, I honestly, you know, despite the fact that he thought he could do this without God, clearly he could not. Right. The same thing with Martin Heidegger. Clearly he could, I mean, after, yeah, at the end of the day, Martin Heidegger was a Nazi. Right, Let's face say, facts. Right, right, you know, right, uh, right. and you know, the, the prince of authenticity. Who right. are we fooling here? Right. So, I mean, uh, you know, when, when you get there, you know, let's just face facts. I need God to be authentic. I need God to purify my love. I need God to get beyond my own egocentricity. I need God to get beyond my sensuality. I need God in order to be a more responsible right. person. And so if you think that it's not just thinking about being personally responsible, but acting in a more perfectly responsible way, acting in a more responsible way itself, uh, according to the, 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 uh, the ideals of love, uh, you know, authentic love, non-egocentric love. If wow. that's the case, we need God. We need Jesus Christ. We need the sacraments. And of course, in my own life, I can actually mm -hmm. attest that, you know, I'm a little less narcissistic and a little less utilitarian and a little less of a rotten, no good consequentialistic bum than I was before I actually took my religion seriously. Right. So take it from me. It, Jesus' grace is real, well, the Holy Spirit is real, and it can even get an egoist like me beyond himself into the light of God and other people and the good of other people and the kingdom of God, mm -hmm. even when so much of me inside just wants to say, look at me. The point, of course, is pretty clear. Right. It's God's grace that helps. Right. I'm powerless. But doesn't that go take that, that prayer, that take John that, Right, that takes humility, though. That it takes that willing, yeah. that ability, that ability to realize I cannot do it myself. I need help. Oh yeah. Uh, human beings yeah. don't like to really rely on anybody else. Even people who rely on people because it helps them out on the short term tend to resent the fact that they have to give up their autonomy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And people who think I'm I'm perfectly authentically loving, and mm -hmm. they're looking at themselves in the mirror, and right. they really believe that, and they say that I don't need any help. I can do this on my own. Uh, divine grace is is really an unnecessary thing for me. And even despite the fact that so many people just really good, loving, moral agents. Uh, I mean, not just in the church, but all over the place who claim that their faith has been integral, right? The, the whole, you know, sure. I was blind, but now I see amazing grace, right? Uh, you know, that little song just says it all, you know, and all I can tell you is if you really, really look at yourself in the mirror, you know. Right. You're not all that perfectly responsible. You're not all that perfect to carry out, you know, the 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 ideals of love uh, to other people. I mean, uh, isn't there a little bit of the old, right. uh, uh, you know, Heideggerian inauthenticity but, staring back at you in the mirror? But if, and if so, right. can Jesus Christ help? And if so, follow Him. But Sorry. but if you're your own <laughs> self-reverential reference to yourself as to what is acceptable, you know what I mean? You can convince yourself. Yeah. And I think also with this, I was thinking yeah. in terms of the person also allows a person not to care about other people because they say, well, I'm taking care of myself. 
it's your personal responsibility to take yeah. care of yourself. So I don't really have to worry about you. Yeah. Oh yeah, I carry my own weight. You carry yours. Right. You know that's the way it is. And uh, but of course, you know, there's there's something wrong with a person who says I don't need grace. You know. Right. Um, uh, well, they're lying race, to themselves. That's what it is, and they're afraid to be wretch like me. And especially today, I mean, they're afraid to be vulnerable. I think that's what a lot of people are afraid of today. They're afraid they're going to be let down or, or taken advantage of. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That I submit to a religion, and then the religion, you know, will take away, you know, my personal responsibility. Religion never takes away mm -hmm. personal responsibility. Religion always tries. An authentic religion tries to help people to be more and more responsible to the ideals of good and love and those ideals of good and love that are not necessarily mm -hmm. what I would desire in what I would call a level one or level two fashion but definitely what right. I would desire in my most authentic moments for a level three contributive and a level four transcendent uh, a mode of authenticity and, okay. and if that's the case if you really want to love and you really want to do the good according to a, a framework that's not just controlled by the what I call the the principle of infinite Spitzerian rationalization <laughs> then for all intents and purposes uh, I would say if you want to get beyond rationalization and egocentricity you, you gotta go to God there's just the only way he's our creator mm -hmm. he knows who we are he, he, he you know he, you know he, look at yourself in the mirror mm -hmm. that that's the key thing if you really believe you are that personally responsible to true ideals of love and goodness come on mm -hmm. you know get over it yeah I you think know, I mean uh, in reality I, I, if you, you know. if you really see it you'll see Dorian Gray's uh, painting uh, staring probably yeah. back at you that'll yeah. be the reality regardless oh, of what yeah, you think yeah absolutely right? all right absolutely here's, a, here's great another, image here's yeah. another question for you dear father spitzer can god forgive a person's sins before they go to confession i worry about this because i may commit a mortal sin but must wait until saturday for confession if i die before saturday am i condemned to hell anonymous I don't think so. Anonymous, yes, and yes, God can get, forgive your sins before you go to confession, but God also knows your intention to go to right, confession. Right, right. So can God apply that future intention that you have to your present state if you should die before you get to the confession? Mm -hmm. Yes, and the Catholic Church teaches that, yes, God can do that. So if your intention is to, is right. to get to uh, confession and you've committed a mortal sin and you die before you can get there, God can save you on the basis that very intention because of course he knows the human heart and he does not want to condemn you he wants to save you and of course if your intention is to be saved by him to go to that sacrament and to to receive his forgiveness he will honor it you right. are okay right he's not setting these things up as obstacles for you to be saved yeah exactly. so right exactly. Right, exactly exactly next up dear father spitzer psalm 144 starts out as Praise be to the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. Can one associate this scripture with that of the need to pray the rosary, Sam? Well, Sam, I mean, uh, 
uh, you might say that in what the, the, the Catholic Church calls the fuller sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and the fuller sense means that, you know, when the author of that psalm wrote that, right, you know, let's suppose it was a, a Davidic or post-Davidic person who, you know, is living in a warrior society like Israel, mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, he's probably writing it from the perspective of, you know, relief, of, you know, training your arms for battle and your hands for war. Now, the, the point is uh, pretty clear, um, you know, that uh, you could say that, well, you know, in a fuller sense, uh, the psalmist, even though he didn't know he was mm -hmm. saying that, uh, you know, uh, and didn't intend to say that, uh, you know, the psalm could be used to pray that way, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, uh, uh, to say the rosary. And, you know, so it could be a decent way of looking at those um, words, the, you know, that were written, uh, you know, for a time, you know, that's uh, probably in the, uh, uh, you know, post-Davidic kingdom. And so, um, you know, that's just fine. Um, you know, uh, uh, I would say go ahead mm -hmm. and, and interpret the psalm that way and, and think of it that way. Uh, but, you know, you don't want to attribute intentionality to the psalmist in that direction. But it would be an, an unintentional consequence that could be applied uh, to, uh, to for uh, the words of, of that psalm. Okay, very good. Another question, uh, dear Father Spitzer, it's my belief that God loves us all equally. If so, why would Jesus have had a beloved disciple whom he favored more, Amy? Well, Amy, um, you know, it's not that he favored him more. Um, you know, basically um, um, uh, what he is uh, saying um, is, uh, you know, you know, the author is, the, the author is giving himself the name that is Jesus's name. Remember that Jesus himself takes the name of Ha Agapetas, the beloved one, mm -hmm. right? So um, we see that uh, in the uh, the Psalm of the Wicked uh, Vintners. We also see uh, in the various um, uh, transfiguration, uh, uh, you know, accounts, and also in the baptismal mm -hmm. accounts. Uh, when the, the cloud comes over and the revelation from God comes forward, right, that, that this is my ha-huyas, uh, ha-agapetas, my beloved son, my beloved one. And so, of course, that's Jesus's name, as mm. it were, uh, you know, by God. Jesus is the beloved one. Now, here is John. He's very, let's say it is John that is the beloved disciple, probably is. And let's suppose then that um, he feels in his heart, his closeness to Jesus is so, you know, definitive. His love for him and Jesus' love for him is so definitive. He decides, well, gee, the most important thing in my life is the fact that I am beloved by him. And so, right, I'm loved by him. And so in that thought, he names himself the beloved disciple, right? So he says, I'm taking on this name because a name signifies my nature, my reality. And what is my nature, my reality? The most important and the most central and the most significant thing is why, you know, I'm loved by Jesus. So I'm going to call myself the beloved one. So um, the idea, though, in the Petrine uh, formula 
uh, you know, Peter, do you love me more than these, mm -hmm. right, is the reverse of Jesus loving Peter more than these. Jesus is saying, hey, uh, you know, do you love me more than these? Uh, and, and he's, you know, and Peter, uh, you know, says, yes, Lord. You know, so Jesus is trying to get that firm commitment out because each time he's saying that, Jesus is forgiving a denial and then missioning him to feed or to tend the sheep. So the idea then is it's not Jesus saying, Peter, I love you more than these. Uh, it's basically, uh, you know, he's asking Peter, do you love me uh, more than these other disciples? Now, you just say, well, why did Jesus ask the question that way? I think he did because, of course, he's trying to get uh, uh, Peter to admit that, you know, um, his love is, you know, beyond anything. And of course, uh, uh, you know, I don't encourage comparisons on those levels, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but Jesus is doing it for Peter's own sake mm -hmm. so that he knows, hey, you know, I, I made a terrible mistake denying Jesus. You know, my, my, my master, my beloved one, I, mm -hmm. I made a terrible mistake uh, in doing this. Of course, I love him and I love him more than anything, you know, and so uh, uh, he basically, uh, uh, elicits that from Peter in order right. to get that sense of not only forgiveness, but now you're going to be the chief shepherd. Right. You're going to be the one who is missioned above all the others. And so uh, that's why I think right. he uh, puts it in that way. Right. Okay, very good. Next up, dear Father Spitzer, I recently attended an interfaith service for a deceased friend. The service was held at a Catholic church, but was not part of a mass. Part of it included readings from mm -hmm. the Koran by a Muslim. I'm all for ecumenism, but the particular service seemed wrong in a Catholic church and another venue should have been selected. Monica, what do you think? Well, Monica, you know, um, I, I, it's not uh, per se, again, uh, I, I, you know, um, uh, wrong to read um, uh, from, uh, you know, another scripture in a Catholic church. So uh, again, uh, you know, if that's done with the proper intention of being uh, ecumenical or being accepting uh, to a person of another faith and, and, and so forth, uh, you can do that. Of course, reading that in the context of a mass would be right, a whole right, different thing. Right, right. But I mean, if you're just saying uh, the Koran reading took place in a Catholic church, it's really okay, mm. um, you know, to, to do that. It's not an abomination. Uh, uh, to do that and I think if the intention is to bring people together in this sad event then I think it's uh, it's okay you know it's certainly not misleading I don't mm -hmm. think and I don't think anybody's going to go out and say well I should become a Muslim they read a, a passage from the Quran in a Catholic church right. so under the circumstances I think it's okay and we assume and it's not it a particular passage a, that's problematic for Catholics or Christians so I mean yeah Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, I mean, if it's something is clearly contrary to the doctrine of the Catholic Church, right. you know, forget about that. Yeah, right. don't read that passage. So, but if it's something that, you know, you know, correlates well with the doctrines of the Catholic Church, that absolutely right. would be a condition needed okay. uh, to be a valid uh, action. Okay, we're closing in on about five minutes or so, Father. We still have a okay. few questions for you. Uh, up next, dear Father Spitzer, mm -hmm. we know that Jesus was crucified on a cross. In Acts of the Apostles and a couple other places, Jesus is referred to as being hung on or nailed to a tree. How can I explain this discrepancy, Bob? 
Well, Bob, this is a favorite thing for all non-Christians uh, to point out to uh, good Catholic people. You see, there is a historical discrepancy. Uh, first of all, uh, let's face facts. There are there is so much multiple attestation uh, to Jesus, uh, you know, being crucified and being on a cross, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, there's no question about the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross. And if you turn to the Shroud of Turin, oh, you can see uh, that he carried his cross. And of course, the normal mode of crucifixion, uh, you know, by the Romans at the time of Jesus's, um, you know, uh, crucifixion was, of course, to crucify a person on a cross. Now, uh, very typically, you know, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, the word tree could have been used just to signify the wood of the cross. Mm -hmm. The idea of taking this as a literal tree, you know, or something of that nature, uh, you know, has been, you know, uh, is really a far stretch. Uh, I think it, what it refers to is the wood of the cross mm -hmm. or, you know, the substance of the cross, uh, something of that nature. And it is not some kind of a break with tradition. After all, who wrote Luke? Mm -hmm. I mean, who wrote Acts? Gave away my own answer. <laughs> Luke, of course. And does Luke portray Jesus crucified on the cross? Yes. But Luke then gives that passage in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, you know, which has the kerygma about the tree in it. Why didn't Luke change the right. word tree right. to cross and make it all consistent? Two reasons. Number one, he was being true to his charismatic source. So he was taking this passage from a kerygma, uh, an early church proclamation, like a shortened creed. Mm. He's taking this um, uh, from that passage. He's going to be true to that source. But the second reason is because Luke didn't see a contradiction between the tree and the cross because Luke took that, in, um, that passage to mean the mm. wood of the cross and not a tree growing somewhere. Mm. So, I mean, I mean, you know, we have to be commonsensical about these things, but it's important to know that Luke did write the Acts of the Apostles, and Luke wasn't just being careless. If any, uh, you know, of all the evangelists, Luke is just the most uh, non-careless in his grammar and uh, in his testimony. So I think you can be very well assured that there is no historical contradiction. Jesus was clearly crucified on a cross, and of course, the tree image refers to the wood of the cross mm -hmm. as the evangelist Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, clearly demonstrates by including the tree right. in the passage from Acts. Two minutes to go. Dear Father Spitzer, okay. my, my father was not <laughs> yeah, Catholic and never expressed any interest in any religion at all. He was recently, recently died. My mother was a very devout Catholic arranged for a Catholic funeral from her parish and had my father buried in a Catholic cemetery. Was all this allowed, mm -hmm. although he never expressed that I would think this would be contrary to my father's wishes, I would also think that a non-Catholic would not be given a full Catholic funeral. This is Sandy. Well, Sandy, uh, no, you can have a Catholic funeral for a person who is 
uh, non-Catholic. I mean, uh, uh, obviously, um, um, if it was if he was a radical atheist mm -hmm. who was uh, lived a life contrary to the Catholic Church, uh, that would be something else. Uh, but if he just was uh, seemingly indifferent, but uh, supported your mother in her mm -hmm. Catholicism, or at least uh, did not actively resist it and didn't actively resist Christ or the Church, mm -hmm. uh, it's all right for him to be buried uh, in a Catholic cemetery. And uh, generally, they would probably use uh, the short uh, rite, mm -hmm. um, you know, of uh, of uh, Christian burial there. But it could have also had a mass for him. Right. Masses are said all the time for people who are non-Catholics, and you know, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, my right. my father was very much a religious person. Um, you know, uh, he was a Lutheran, but he. He, he, you know, he was not a Catholic, and I say mass for him all the time. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I uh, think he now knows very well, uh, you know, uh, what I'm doing and why I hold what I hold. Right. Uh, after all, he's got Christ as his uh, instructor. If my uh, sense of his being right. in heaven is quite correct, and I think it is. <laughs> so right. <there> it is. <laughs> Ab absolutely, and it just shows the love of a devout Catholic. What would they want to do for their spouse? That's uh, an act of love. Yeah. From from their mother, yeah, obviously, absolutely. certainly, and it's seen that Good way. Good point, so, right? So, with that said, absolutely. we'd ask you to uh, give us your blessing on the way out the door. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing, and may the Lord bless you in His love and teach you His true compassion, His unconditional love, His desire to forgive, His desire to lead you into the fullness of His kingdom, and may He give you the wisdom to proclaim that same love to those you meet so that you truly might evangelize in His name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next week. And don't forget, Father Spitzer's books and videos are available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com for all things Catholic. Next week, we return to topics from Father's book, Christ versus Satan, in our daily lives. And don't forget about my little show, Bookmark. It's on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern. Hopefully, always you find it of interest. And be sure to take EWTN with you. 24-7 everywhere you go. EW10 is everywhere with our app. And you can check out Father Spitzer's Universe. It's on the app and all the other great programs we have. Get it at EW10apps.com. I'm Doug Keck. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.